all the crazy bad things that are happening around us all day, every day, we're creating neuropathways based off of those and ramping up our nervous system to be on hypervigilant, on guard, thinking those things can happen to us, but kind of unconsciously. So Paige, thank you for reaching out to me. Uh, anytime I get, you know, someone new through my podcast, it's kind of exciting. It's kind of why I'm doing it. And I know you reached out for several reasons, but specifically one thing that struck a chord with me is the reason you started your psychology practice. And correct me if I'm wrong, but that's due to a lot of the loss and traumas that you've witnessed in your own life through people you've worked with or people that you've known in your life. And so if you want to start with an introduction about what you do, then we could kind of, you know, break the ice with some of the stories you recommended. Yeah. So, you know, I have an integrated sports medicine practice, but I really focus on the mental aspect of things. And really, um, you know, I grew up, had a lot of trauma in my adverse childhood experiences, I guess. And then moving into college, lost a good friend to suicide. He was a quarterback and I ran cross country at the college and that was really impactful. I don't think I realized how impactful it was until later in my life when I started realizing that um, I had started utilizing drugs and alcohol to kind of calm that sadness or grief or whatever I wasn't ready to process when I was about 19. So there was that piece and then getting sober when I was 22, actually. So he died when I was 19 and Part of that I found was like, oh, wow, I started really binge drinking to forget anything that was uncomfortable and particularly when Dustin killed himself. So it was interesting because that whole piece um, really moved me as a person and shifted me from an exercise science, full sports medicine background to more the mental aspect at that time. And so then I went back and got my master's in social work and then started doing the clinical social work with athletes. But right before I started my practice, I'd lost another friend to suicide who had been also a collegiate athlete in Colorado. And he'd worked with me on the mountain teaching skiing. And ironically, at 28, I was teaching skiing on the mountain. I'd left my job at the Department of Human Services because my dad had terminal cancer. And so I went home to be with my family. And then after he passed, I took a job teaching, didn't really want a lot of responsibility at the time. And I kind of felt like it was a sign when uh, Sean had killed himself that it was like, hey, you know, we have a really high rate of suicide in Steamboat, Colorado, and someone should be doing something about this. And I was kind of looking around at the 200 and some ski instructors, and I was probably the only one that had like the education <laughs> to actually be able to do something about it. So then I started kind of on this quest of really understanding suicide, why we complete suicide the whole connection with concussions or sports injuries or trauma or whatever that looks like. And so that really became an obsession about 10 years ago. So it's kind of where I'm at now. You know, I used to be very, it's taken years and years and years. I've been in therapy since I was 17 to really be grounded in talking about a lot of these really terrible scenarios and and working in trauma with individuals. I work with athletes going through trauma because like I said, I kind of identified that Mental or physical trauma is really what leads us to either suicide ideation with drugs and alcohol or just suicide ideation in general, or kind of leads us into these habitual resourcing, negative, maladaptive behaviors. So that's kind of how it all got here. So when it was like the Dead Talks podcast, I'm like, well, yeah, well, every time someone's died or a death has occurred in my life, it's kind of influenced me to do something. Yeah, it's beautiful that you actually 
decided to make it a life journey to actually make a difference. You know, I feel like at one time or another, a lot of us are affected by suicide. And, uh, you know, not, not, I would say the very low minority end up taking a step to actually trying to do something about it. And, you know, so I commend you of your efforts to do so. So in regards to your, you know, it seemed like you had a blend of personal experience in regards to your own mental and obviously, you know, experiential value with people that you knew that were affected by suicide. So I don't know if you want to use specific examples. We don't have to do that. But what exactly do you see as the leading cause, if there even is one that, you know, what you found that kind of gets someone down the path of making that decision to take their life? Well, the thing is, is that, you know, 60% of the individuals who take their own lives have not been diagnosed with mental disorder or haven't even really sought help. So when we start looking at it that way, it's more this, the stigma within our culture is still so strong, which is unfortunate, but it's also just this ability to be vulnerable. And I don't know if everyone will reach in their lifetime the ability to reach out for help and ask for help and be vulnerable and face some of the traumas or hurts or pains that have gotten them into a really depressed uh, nervous system state. And so I really find a lot of peace with that because everyone believes really that if they could, and I even had a client yesterday, her uh, brother had completed suicide and you know, the obviously the common thing, even myself with my friends who'd completed suicide, well, gosh, if I just talked to them, why didn't they reach out to me? What, you know, all those kinds of pieces. But it is just really this like, well, you were able to be vulnerable with that individual. They knew that you could handle their vulnerability, but they just couldn't do it. And I just think that, you know, you can find some solace in that as opposed to sit there and holding on to this anger or, and of course, have your emotions, feel your emotions, process your emotions. But um, it's not about this like, hey, you know, something I could have done or the way that I could have been, I could have shifted this person's trajectory because that's not true. So there's that piece on its own. And then the other component of just that, you know, people can heal, people can reprocess the traumas that have gotten them into the nervous system dysregulation. And so if I can do anything in this world, it's not so much of this, um, you know, like, oh, I'm, you know, stopping suicide. I'm doing this on my own or anything like that. It's that, hey, let's show the world that there are these modalities and talk about, you know, be more vulnerable and open and and talking about these things publicly so that individuals will uh, be able to shift into that space of potentially knowing that there's hope, that they can have a change in nervous system state, mental health state, because I don't know if everyone believes that when they are really in a terrible place. Because when you're in a terrible place, it's really hard to feel that you could feel better. So, and they just don't really know. So at a certain point in time, you're just so exhausted in this space and um, feeling so hopeless. And it really, it's it's nervous system uh, based anyways. You know, it's not a, a moral or ethical flaw that you don't feel well or have a nervous system dysregulation of anxiety, depression, whatever that looks like. So I think that really at this point, it's educating on how, yes, you can feel terrible, but you can move to a different state. And there are these uh, modalities to do that. And then also working with individuals who have lost someone, like I said, with this, like, hey, you can't really blame yourself. It is just that this is where this individual got in this lifetime that they're here. But I really do find that trauma is the gateway to dysregulation, no matter what that looks like. So it starts with trauma, which makes sense. And then when you, you said earlier, when you first started, you know, speaking 
there's a stigma. Is the stigma just discussing suicide or discussing mental health? Is that what you're saying the stigma is, is not being open about it? The mental health aspect, you know, that we just don't talk about right. seeking help, getting help, you know, I'll have at least weekly a consultation with parents about their kids and, you know, their their kids may be um, indignant and not really wanting to come to therapy. And we're talking very high-performing, really uh, gifted children when it comes to uh, sports and uh, school and all these things here in this. I'm in the Seattle Bellevue area, so people work really hard here. They really want to achieve success and be at the top of their class and all those pieces. But, you know, you'll sit here and talk to these high achieving parents and these kids have already started doing some maladaptive coping behaviors. And when it comes to adverse childhood experiences, it's not necessarily like there's been like child abuse or lack of security or food or something like that. It is more just this high level of stress and this potential of the perfectionism kind of failure aspect of things. And so what I start to see, these parents are saying, hey, either this kid is cutting themselves or I'm seeing that they're smoking a lot of pot or they're drinking a lot or they're crashed their car twice. Like some of these like high risk suicide ideation kinds of habitual resources and behaviors. And when you're talking to an individual, you're just like, well, tell them it's more about them wanting to get their D1, you know, football scholarship or their D1 diving scholarship, as opposed to saying, hey, we're really worried about you. You're doing all these terrible things. You're bad. All this, like you need to go get help. And so that's kind of the problem because the parents are coming in going, how do we get them to you? We're so worried. This is bad. This is wrong. And you're like, well, you're only making the stigma worse with that. You know what I mean? You're only making it sound like this is a terrible thing. This is a punishment. This is, you have to go here for the rest of your life because something's wrong with you. You know, it's like, it's all this really negative connotation when it really should be more this proactive, just like with physical exercise of, hey, this is just what we do. You know, we have to work out our brain just like we work out our body. And this is a positive thing. And this is a growth thing. And this is what helps you reach your uh, athletic goals, just like the physical training in the gym. So I think it's that kind of stigma that we still got going on that is really harmful, even though, again, these parents, good intentioned, wanting their kids to come into therapy. They're seeing these things going on. But that's still our frame that we have on mental health. <laughs> so that's where we still get this like, well, as opposed to being told that I'm wrong and bad and going to someone who's going to analyze me and tell me what's wrong with me, I can't face that. This is just too uncomfortable. I'm going to take my life. And so that's what we see. And it's being able to talk about that bluntly because with young kids particularly, we don't have a lot of stats when it comes to exactly you know, you'll look at the public health department and how many attempted suicides in a certain age range. And then we have potential suicide, right? So one's like, we look at things like hanging and drug overdose and other accidents, like jumping off bridges and stuff like that. And it's like, was it really suicide? Wasn't it, you know, like, was the drug overdose really suicide? Or did the kid get a hold of, you know, some fentanyl or something? We don't really know. So there's a lot of this, like, we don't really talk about it, so we're trying to pretend like it's not going on. Like, So the suicide thing's kind of bizarre, too, when it comes to, here we talk about mental health, is this really bad, something's wrong with you, you're, you know, and then we talk about, like, we don't really talk about suicide in some ways, but we kind of do in other ways, and it's all a mess. We, we need to talk about it, we need to <laughs> break down these stigmas, we need to stop viewing these things as such bad, sad things. And this is the other interesting thing. Over 50% of psychotherapists are afraid to work with a suicidal patient. And so when you look at that, you think, well, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, it's like they're afraid that they would be at risk of, you know, losing their license or that they would say something wrong to where the client would complete suicide because of them. 
so that's it with this whole kind of weird stigma thing that we're still dancing with here around mental health and perpetuates the suicide. It's so interesting what you last said. I had a, uh, a guest, a childhood friend of mine, Jackie LaRusso, and she's a therapist and she focuses on eating disorders, but she mentioned something of the sort in regards to a lot of therapists are scared in some sense or worried to take on certain clients that may be at more risk of suicide due to liability purposes, which I understand, you know, at some level that that is a scary thing, but it's also kind of a double-edged sword that some people actually step away from helping someone based on a potential loss of license due to saying the wrong thing or directing them in the wrong way and they lead to lose their life. That's such an angle that never is really thought about. If you're saying 50% are unwilling to approach people like that, that's a large chunk of people that are not getting help. And it's, again, what if a therapist, if that's their energy and their approach and how they are, all of it, you know, energy really doesn't lie. Like we look at quantum physics and so much of our communication is energetic. And so, you know, you hear oftentimes that an individual will go to therapy and they'll think that the therapist can't handle what they're going to say. And so there's some of that too. So they'll go like once and be like, man, they don't really understand what's going on with me. They've never been through something like this. Or when I was talking to them, they just kept saying how bad it was. I mean, so there's a lot of that kind of Rogerian thing that gets in there too, where people just be like, wow, they told me how terrible my life was. Like, I don't know if I can go back to that person. They just made me feel worse. And it's like, oh my gosh. When the intention is more that Rogerian of like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you're going through this. You poor thing. I'm hearing this, 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 right? So there's there's just some interesting pieces here with it all. And then that whole not wanting to face it. And, and that's the same thing in, in our general population, right? Where people are like, well, I know so-and-so is struggling, but I don't really know what to say. I could say the wrong thing. Or, oh, I don't know. I'm kind of worried about them, but I don't know what to say. And it's really this, what we know with suicide prevention is confronting. You know, like, hey, are you thinking about taking your life? Like you're seeming, you know, you seem like you're low right now or something like that. And then saying, hey, I'm here to talk, because you can't really say anything wrong. To think that someone is so fragile when it comes to saying something wrong and offering support would be completely polar to just ignoring someone. Can it be misinterpreted? Like the way some, you know, the way some people come off is, is seeking help. I think some people can be defensive on receiving that help, right? So not that even though the intentions are good, it can, can it not be received wrong? And I think it depends on how hard that person you know, and, and so then that comes into, we talk about this with social work all the time. So when we talk about helping someone, it's like, if you're working harder than the client, then the client's not working. So you can take that to any kind of frame when we're trying to help someone or support someone or, or want someone to seek help or get better for whatever's going on. You can't do the work for the individual. So there's got to be some level of motivation in some sense. So if someone is just very like, like if they're dealing with a drug addiction or something, which is really suicide ideation to an extent, because we know if we're utilizing substances, we're going to die eventually. But nonetheless, like it is that kind of thing that if their defenses are so strong when you're like, hey, please go to rehab, we don't want you to die kind of thing. Hey, you're in the car, please. And they're kicking and screaming and being volatile towards you or something, or just, you know, go MIA, that's on them. You know, we can only do to the extent, offer what we can, you know, and I think that that's a space that any helper has to set those boundaries eventually with people. And, and I think in dynamics and interpersonal relationships, that happens as well, right? So you'll get individuals who, if they're taking too much from a relationship, you're finally just like, all right, I can't, you know, your life is always in a disarray. We've talked about 
potentially you going to therapy, you're not wanting to do any of these things. This is difficult for me, for my energy at this point. So it's that kind of balance with helping people. Because yeah, you'll get the defenses. That's what we say. Oh, that part's defensive. It doesn't want to heal. Right. I think what you said earlier, I really like of comparing, you know, the physical aspect, you talk with sports and all that, the physical aspect that we always work out our physical muscles and training and discipline. It takes time, this and that. And it sh- I believe it should be looked the same way in regards to our mental health and that it is normal to feel bad. It is normal to not feel good and go through our ebbs and flows of life. And that doesn't mean it should be attached to a stigma that, you know, you, you're damaged goods or something like that. And you should be ashamed or feel bad that you feel this way, which is what I'm understanding from you, that that's part of the stigma, which therefore I feel like buries that person even deeper, further away from actually seeping help. So I do like that approach of saying, this is kind of, this is a part of life. It's, it's, it's okay that you feel like this, but you should understand that it takes effort and time to work on that. You got to work the, those mental muscles to get out of the hole. Correct. Is that, am I seeing that right? Yeah. And really what happens with us as survival-based humans and having that primitive aspect of our brain is that over time, high levels of stress, trauma, things that are just even kind of disruptive, right? So, you know, friend group breakups or (laughs) breaking up with an ex, even at a pretty young age, you know, when these kids are like 12 years old or something, that still really impacts your nervous system to the point that we start to get ramped up into sympathetic nervous system state all the time. So very hypervigilant. Um, that fight, fight, freeze kind of mentality. And so, especially even with like about, gosh, your senior in high school or freshman in college, you really start to see that a high performer isn't sleeping very well. They're um, not necessarily happy per se. They're just going through the motions. They're doing what they know that they need to do. They're so busy all the time. And if you literally ask this person, most of the time, it's like, are you happy? They'll be like, uh, yeah, <laughs> like they don't even know what that is. But so the survival mechanism within us, like over time, we get more and more in this sympathetic nervous system state. And that's kind of like your flat effect, not completely depressed, but just not really engaging. So we naturally get there. And so what we do is we do things to decondition that within our nervous system. So I use a trauma reprocessing desensitization like altered consciousness state type of psychotherapy where we go back through all the negative or stressful things in your life in the altered state and allow for your brain and body to let those things go so that they're not holding on to them very unconsciously, thinking they're going to happen again and that they have to be hypervigilant for that. Because back, of course, when you were a caveman, if a rock fell off a cliff, you needed to be hypervigilant every time you're walking under a cliff or else you could die. But nowadays, we have so much inundation and the sound pollution and the sound and distractions that we can't really take it. Like our nervous system is so ramped up all the time. We're just in this high level of oxidative stress, lots of cortisol, not sleeping well, not uh, repairing and recovering. So that's parasympathetic, the other end of our nervous system state. So we do that. And then the other things that we all know about, like visualization, meditation, any of the binaural frequency entrainment stuff, the PEMF. Uh, we have all these other ways to entrain though those brain waves in the nervous system state to get you back down to parasympathetic. But we need to decondition and desensitize and detrain all the trauma or negative or high levels of stress so that an individual deregulates naturally into more of this rest recovery. And I call it flow state because right above the parasympathetic is flow where you're utilizing all of your faculties, whatever your performance is, very unconsciously, but not in this, you know, hypervigilance, losing full control of your motor neurons and being in this muscle-guarded, freezed 
reactive state. So that's what happens with athletes, right? Not everyone every day is going to have to go out there and perform physically. So we don't see it as show up as strong as you would in an athlete when it comes to this muscle guarding, hypervigilant, not being in flow. So I I may be going backwards on this, but how do you, before you get to those stages of having, you know, actually being in front of your your clients, as you just mentioned, and, and working on those modalities to heal them, what is your opinion on that first conversation for someone that may recognize someone that is struggling and that may be suicidal, or even if they vocalize or we know for sure they're suicidal? Is there, this might be a tough general question, but in your opinion, is there a ice breaking approach? I know we kind of touched base on how, like, on approaches and how it could be di- diagnosed, but. I'm more of like a very, I'm a confrontation is kind of my style with individuals. So when I talk to an individual, I'm just talking to them about the neuroscience of things and then just really asking them, I guess we call it kind of motivational interviewing, kind of challenging someone's beliefs and where they're at with things. So I would sit there and be like, oh, so are you having fun in your sport? And be like, um, yeah. I'm like, really? That doesn't sound very fun. It's like, is it, this is your idea of like showing me fun? Like, what's going on here, you know? And just start digging into it and being like, well, what does it look like? You know, when was the last time you had a lot of fun in your sport or something? What about specifically someone, like before they get to you? Like, for instance, if I had a friend that I thought was suicidal, is there a, a beneficial approach that you see and how I would approach that person if I thought they needed help? Well, I think it's that whole talking about things in the sense of, hey, you know, I've been seeing this person or I've been doing some peak performance coaching and these things have really helped me see some clarity or something like that. Like, again, it's this when someone tells you they're worried about you or this is this, sometimes people can lean into that, but most of the time it just makes people feel self-conscious and like they can't tell you anything anymore or that you're like, you know, judging them. So it is more of that when it comes to when we're approaching our friends, it's saying, hey, yeah, like I'm hearing this, this, this. And certainly uh, seeing a peak performance coach or a psych can be very helpful with that. It's like, it's hard for me to hear you have to go through this. Yeah, because I had an example of my buddy was mentioning someone in his family that, you know, has mentioned suicide over and over again, and they seem to not be making progress. They seem not to be seeking help. And it was at the point where my friend was like, I don't know what to do. It's like at this point, as gruesome as it sounds, like, it seems like I I let him do it because it's like, I I feel like I've exhausted every approach. So at that point, when there's, it seems like you're in the 11th hour, do you put him in a straitjacket and get him to help? Because I feel like from that point, the person that maybe does kill himself, the person that was trying to help them has to live with that the rest of their life. Not to make it about the person that didn't kill themselves, but when you feel like you've exhausted every method to get this person help, is it just on, it's just at that point, is there any other, there are no other options to get them help? They just have to figure out on their own whether they take the bad path or not? Well, that's that kind of thing of the motivation and we can only help people so much. It's really hard. Like, again, being a treatment provider, it's very hard because we all sit here and think like, oh my gosh, we should, and you know, we worry about our clients. Like, you know, it's like you can't do all the work for someone. So it sounds like this individual has not found something that has shifted him yet because I kind of talk about like the shifting and shifting you out of some of those spaces. But yeah, this individual just needs to finally kind of make peace with it. Unfortunately, it's a lot like the drug addiction component. So to an extent, you're going to have to kind of grieve that individual if this person isn't making active progress, right? And it's not like, oh my gosh, just don't want you in my life. It is that just like, well, you know, I have to be prepared that if this person does complete suicide, this was their plan. 
you know, this is what they feel is their only resort and it has nothing to do with me. That's just the reality of life sometimes, I guess. That's just part of the suicide talk is that even if you feel like you've, you can't get through to someone and you're tried or they're not just making the effort to help themselves. And unfortunately, that's just the sad part of life, I think. So it is really important, I think, what you said to show your patients that it is possible to change. Because when you are in the depth of trauma or depression or whatever it may be, there seems like there is no way out. So that is a big part of your process of the motivational aspect of showing that you can get out of this hole. Well, and it's so often, you know, like I had this insanely talented, you know, I get a lot of military kind of people too, because they're super high performers, you know, very much like your, you know, athletes. And it is just so interesting when you're sitting here listening to these individual stories of absolutely how much they have taken in unconsciously and consciously. And and it's like, yeah, no wonder your nervous system is in the flat effect right now and you have zero up or down, right? So you're just flat in this like hypervigilant, not really happy, just going through the motions. And they ask you, there was like, so you really, so people have really changed. People have really felt different. I'm like, yes, they have, you know? And so that's one of the number one things when a client comes into me first, especially one who's had a lot of stress and distress like that, because we know our military um, individuals, veterans, unfortunately, complete suicide super often. It was like 20 a day, uh, not that long ago. It's kind of intense. Um, but again, they're in that space. Like I said, they're in the sympathetic nervous system space where they're just like, I'm not happy. I'm not sad. I'm, you know, everything is setting me off. What's the point of life? I mean, they're just really in this space where they don't think they can ever get out. Yeah. So I think that's one of the bigger things when you're talking with someone and being like, oh no, I've seen it. This happens. This is why this happens. And, and again, using the neuroscience of all the techniques, you know, it's been frustrating when you sit in this, you know, state of the union and, and all these kinds of addresses and Gosh, I think the Surgeon General talked about how youth mental health is our number one priority. Like we have all this stuff out there about like, oh, we need to invest more money in these modalities. We need to do more. And But, you know, really it's just having more therapists accessible and yeah, having more and more modalities available, which is a very easy fix in the end, especially if we started out in schools, right? So in the young kids, we could really nip a lot of all of our societal issues in the bud by providing the structure so that individuals can learn to essentially control their brains. Because that's really what it is. When we're working with these young kids, we're teaching their brain how to be able to rebound from trauma and stress. We're teaching it what's appropriate. We're teaching skills, you know, and us as sports psychs, we talk about, oh, skills all the time and resources and giving these kids these resources. But just kind of thinking about how many individuals wouldn't get to the suicide point or how many individuals wouldn't be utilizing drugs or alcohol or have made other negative choices by then. So yeah, you know, it's like as a society, we say that we're doing all these things, but really it's a pretty basic fix if we added in more emotional mental health care and, and even physical, I guess, at this point in time with our elementary aged kids because that's where it's all happening. You know, like we're, we develop so quickly from birth to even like three years old, we start just dropping off until about 17 with our brain and our, essentially our nervous system. So how we're going to react and act the rest of our life is pretty much conditioned into us by the time we're 17. So if we address these things, <laughs> you know, that's where we need to address them. It's so true. Early on in just a general educational system, it's wild that that's not taught at an early age. And if they could dumb it down in a basic level, the power we have with our thoughts and the importance of our thoughts and what goes through our brain, instead of learning 
the presidents in order and memorizing that. I would like to <laughs> imprint on kids that you can do a lot more and control your mind and prepare yourself for the future in a healthy in a healthy way. So it's wild. That's not that's not actually part of the curriculum, and that's a whole nother uh, tinfoil hat theory that we can go on in another episode. I know. Um, but the, yeah, the, the importance of children and getting them taught young, I feel like, could be such a preventative measure from where we are today. Well, and kids are, they shift so quickly, for one. I call it neuroplato because they'll just shift like instantly. And then the other thing with kids is that, yeah, they want to be learning. So the second that you start talking about the neuroscience, it's funny. They'll come in at like 15 years old or even 11 years old and be like, oh, yeah, my brain was doing this, this, this. And then I felt the hypervigilance. And then I, and you're just like, whoa, you know, it's like they take it all in and understand what's going on with them physiologically and psychologically, because you can't really separate the two, but it's pretty fascinating. But then you get an individual, you know, who's struggled a lot, they're in their mid-30s, and you're trying to explain to them some of these principles, and they can't even connect to their body anymore because they're so disassociated and disconnected because they've had to out of survival. So it's pretty fascinating when you're reconnecting someone back up and, you know, reestablishing you know, essentially your own felt senses and understanding yourself. It's like, yeah, you've stuffed this down your entire life because we don't allow for people to have emotions in society. Well, we allow for the abusers and the manipulative people to have emotions <laughs> is what happens. Right. And I, I think uh, what's worked for me in a sense of a different idea, not, not suicide so much, but when I started to understand a little on a very, you know, not very, very novice level of how the brain works, how your body works, and how they work together, and you understand it biologically and scientifically, I feel like that could play a really strong part in adding to the belief that you can get better. And what I mean by that is by understanding scientifically, okay, this is how your brain works. This is how this will change on a chemical level or however you want to say it. You're going to say this much more elegant than me. But my point is by understanding how your brain works and how it could change and you can get better and it can show it scientifically and biologically, I feel like that that should add to the belief level that you can get better. There's anecdotal evidence of so-and-so got better. But by understanding the science of your brain and how your brain and your mind work together and by breaking that down from a much more clinical aspect that you can do, I feel like that should add to the level of believing that it can actually work on a foundational level. And if we can maybe teach people at a young age, especially how it all works, you know, biologically, I feel like that understanding would improve a lot of people's mental state moving forward, or at least showing that you can improve. I know. And that's the interesting thing too. So I do QEG brain scans and I can actually show people these things, right? Especially with athletes, I can show that your audio, visual, and physical reaction time increase because when you get out of this parasympathetic, you're not as rigid. You know, you have more access to your flow movements and so on, right? Sorry to cut you off, but can you explain that a little more detail, the parasympathetic for dummies, if you will? Okay, so we know our nervous system. That's not a new concept. But in talking with psychotherapy, it's Dr. Stephen Porges came up with polyvagal theory. So he talks about us having two ends of our nervous system. And the vagus nerve being the 12th cranial nerve, the longest nerve that controls so many of our organ systems actions, right? So our heart rates, our respiration rate, our gut motility. So that's our vagus nerve. So that's why anytime we feel like, oh my gosh, that bad feeling, we feel that shocky, like, <gasps> like tightens us up. That's our vagus nerve reacting when we're going through trauma, right? So we talk about over time, that vagus nerve gets weak. So being in this parasympathetic or the sympathetic, I mean, on the high end of the nervous system, if we're there for too long, then our vagus nerve gets weaker, right? So that communication is slowed down. It's not as good. We know this happens in 24 hours when you have a concussion. We know that 
a concussion is enough trauma that it knocks the vagus nerve offline and your gut motility stops when it comes to your gut. So a lot of times you'll get like digestional stuff with a head injury. It's quite interesting. But nonetheless, so that's trauma. So trauma messes with this vagus nerve tone. Then our parasympathetic, that's the rest and recovery and relax and rebuild state and digestion and all of that. So when it comes to being in this fight, flight, freeze or the parasympathetic nervous system state, that's going to be more beta wave too. So if we're looking at the range of brain waves, because our brain waves correlate with our nervous system state and correlate with our heart rate variability. So they all work together. So if you shift one of those, so if you mess with your heart rate variability or mess with your brain weight state, brainwave state or mess with your uh, nervous system state, they will all shift because they all work off of each other. So when you're doing, again, we get ramped up in the sympathetic nervous system state very unconsciously because actually somatically and visually, we make more memories based off our somatic experience and our visual experience. So very unconscious. So we store information quicker than we can actually cognitively process it. So all the crazy bad things that are happening around us all day, every day, we're creating neural pathways based off of those and ramping up our nervous system to be on hypervigilant, on guard, thinking those things can happen to us, but kind of unconsciously. So the war, for instance, in Ukraine, there's not one human on this planet that isn't slightly activated and triggered by it, thinking that could happen to us. It's just our human experience. It's what we do. Like, if a bad thing happens to someone else, we automatically internalize it and think that can happen to us on a very slight level, but it still impacts our nervous system and gets us more in the sympathetic state. We call it a vicarious or secondary trauma. So with that, all the sh- shitty trauma things that have happened to us, all the times that we don't get enough sleep, and then of course, all the stuff going on around us, we get really ramped up in the sympathetic nervous system state. So If I do a QEEG on someone, I will see a high level of beta, so that anxiety kind of wave. I will see a decrease in reaction time in regions of the brain because the brain is really hyperly focused on where it wants to be at that time because it's in survival. So typically midbrain or limbic brain is what we talk about. And that's kind of like your emotion. So you kind of look at teenagers too when they're all emotional brain from 13 to 20, 25. And just very hypervigilant, right? Like, oh my gosh, one little thing happened. So they're like crying and yelling and so upset and all that. Well, when we're really sympathetic and hot in our brain, we're kind of in that limbic brain, same kind of thing. Super reactive, emotional, vindictive, you know, creating story in our mind, you know, thinking that someone's doing this stuff on purpose. So that's really this sympathetic nervous system state. But again, yeah, so I'll see a high level of beta. I'll see a decrease in voltage because the whole brain's not working effectively like it's supposed to be, especially the frontal lobe where we rationalize and reason things. You do a desensitizing, reprocessing session on someone and all of that shifts instantly. You'll knock down more in theta wave. We get a better reaction time throughout the brain. We get more energy, so higher voltage. Because anytime we're in sympathetic, understanding too that that's cortisol, that's oxidative stress. So that's going to cause inflammation. So that'll decrease our voltage in our brain. So the energy of our thought process, essentially, we need enough volts in there. So it is interesting, you know, even after one session, I'll see a pretty big shift. But prolonged changes, it takes a little bit. It's just like working out. So, okay, so you work out one day and you do like really well and we like you know, you're kind of adrenaline up. So you do a really cool one rep. And then like two weeks later, you're like, wow, I'm lifting less. It's like, well, yeah, because your nervous system was I'm like, oh, this is great. But it went right back to its 
maladaptive state, you know, and so we have to continue to slowly entrain it to get to where it needs to be. But our nervous system is the same way. So once it learns how to do something, we just keep doing that over and over to keep entraining it and knocking it out of the sympathetic nervous system state. Jeez, I need to read more books. That was, uh, there's so much... There's so much there, but what I'm taking from that is a book I am reading right now, Biology of Belief by Bruce Lipton. The one the one thing I'm rec- which is cool what you're saying very early in the book, he mentions the importance of I forget the the definition of what he calls it, but instead of looking at one specific region, like when they're looking at cardiovascular issues, like instead of just studying just the heart, you got to look at the entire system. Right. So it's it's interesting how you're how you're explaining, you know, one thing affects the other and affects the other and affects the other it's all one organism as opposed to focusing on just, on just one thing. And you did mention specifically concussions. I did want to mm-hmm. briefly bring that up about CTE. And also before I get into CTE, you said the effect of the, of the vagus nerve, when you get a concussion, it can lead to digestive issues. Is that why? Cause I got a concussion. I got knocked out. I mean, a couple of times, but one time I got a concussion. I, it's very, it's very common that you throw up. Is that, is that the correlation you're talking about? Yeah. And it's that shock. Like, oh my God, I can't handle this food in my stomach. We can't do this. We only can keep the brain alive right now. This is too much. And so, yeah, throw it up. Yeah. I got, I remember I got knocked out and that's what happened. But, but besides my concussion, the correlation of, of CTE, and I also have no idea what that acronym, what that stands for. So that abbreviation, so you can, uh, you can allude on that, but I'm curious to, you know, get into a little bit, the effects of CTE and suicide. Well, and so that was kind of one of the first things, like, because my friend, he had been an alpine skier and he played lacrosse and he played on men's league since he was very young too. Sean, who'd completed suicide. Um, and then he played high school football, right? And then Dustin was a high school football player. And this was back when they were still like tackling in practice, right? So I thought for sure, I was just like, yeah, it, there's got to be a correlation because this was right when Right when I first started kind of looking at all that stuff was when the movie Concussion came out with Will Smith. And I met the lawyer at a sports concussion conference who was litigating them. Very interesting guy. Super great intentions within and around trying to help because he'd actually had a Fred McNeil, a retired NFL player within his law firm. So the whole thing really started. They they were just curious why Fred was, you know, not on point anymore. Like he was losing his cognitive ability. And so really interesting time, right? So I (laughs) hooked up with some of those people. And then I uh, went to train under Dr. Jeffrey Kucher and Mickey Collins. So Alec Baldwin played Mickey Collins in the movie. He's an amazing guy. He's a a neuropsychologist out in Pittsburgh. He's doing really cool stuff. And so those are the first people that I gravitated towards, you know, trying to figure this out. It's like, wait, have you guys figured this out? What's going on here? And it really came down to the fact that, you know, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, There is a correlation between an individual over time, like completing suicide with this un, you know, unaddressed, untreated brain injury, right? To say that everyone who's had a concussion will get CTE is absolutely false because there's so many different variables in there. First thing that they did, obviously, this was was it nine years ago now? <laughs> it's not even that long ago, but they stopped tackle and young kids. They stopped tackle in college every day, like huge things. That's insane. Yeah. They don't need to be slamming their head that often. So those were big pieces. The next component was really the concussion spotters. So people really like watching to make sure. Then they started all implementing the King Devix assessment where you read this card and it's numbers on a card, how fast you're reading it. So that's the gold standard right now still for the they baseline all the guys and then they go out and play. And so they'll bring them in. And if they have a decrease in time with reading those cards, that's how we know. And that's huge because the eyes, smooth pursuit will be messed up 60 to 80% of the time. It's like 
pretty much almost every time the, your eyes have like drawing a circle with your eyes or something, your smooth pursuit muscle will be messed up when you have a concussion. So they know when you're reading things with your eyes, that that's a good way to assess. Cause sometimes assessing a concussion, having an athlete stand on one leg and doing some of those things, it's like their nervous system can handle that test. So they're not going to fall. So the eyes are typically the best one for athletes because your average person will probably not be able to handle some of the basic concussion tests. But with athletes, we found we really need to look at their eyes to know because they are so physically fit and adaptable, right? So there's that. So all of those good things happened. But learning about it more, that if we treat concussions right away effectively, we're not going to have long-term negative outcomes. And so that's been Mickey Collins and Jeff Kucher. Jeffrey Kucher, he's the MD uh, psychiatrist and neurologist for the U.S. ski team. He also does uh, the NFL Players Association, the NBA Players Association. He's the head of the sports concussion wing with the American Academy of Neurology. So between those two guys, they're doing all this data, all of these studies, and have been for the last about 10 years now. And so, you know, what they're finding is that if we treat them effectively, efficiently right away, you're fine, which is huge. And it's kind of what we know anyways, right? So if you pull the person out, they're out for at least the week that they have symptoms. If they continue to have symptoms, we keep them out until the symptoms are gone. We start implementing C-spine adjustments when it comes to chiropractor. We like sports psychology. That's one of the number one things for predictive, good, healthy outcome. Of course, we can put someone on keto right away too if they've had a concussion to try to calm that inflammation also. We want to look at the gut-brain connection because like I said, if it breaks down that vagus tone, we're going to start to get leaky gut. So being very mindful of not drinking alcohol, that's the number one thing. They'll wipe out your gut. So it's the number one thing when you work with athletes, right? So there's just, you know, you start doing all these pieces right up front, hit training. We found that doing high-intensity cardio right away helps clear out the NR2 detox pathway in the brain. It also helps us uh, dump that tau protein. We have seven grams that go through our brain every day. We have 24 grams that go through our body. So that's the thing when they talk about the chronic traumatic encephathy, encephalopathy. <laughs> no, I can't say it. Um, no, I'm not going to try to repeat that. You may be explaining it already. So for people that are affected by CTE that have led to depression, how exactly does that work? And what, is there any protocols that you haven't already mentioned that would cure that? And, and this is interesting. You know, I had an email this morning from someone in, uh, I guess, Boston, looking for some of the modalities that I utilize for their potential CTE, or they think they have CTE. Everyone thinks they have CTE if they're having post-concussion syndrome symptoms, which are super common. So understanding that if you get an injury to the brain, it is inflammation in the brain. So of course, it's going to cause some mental health symptoms. When it comes to depression, that's like your number one, because of course, the nervous system is in this depressed state because it's been in trauma. So we want to work on trauma reprocessing with that concussion, right? But to truly say you have CTE is a very insane statement, honestly. And when it comes to reversing things and healing the brain, I've absolutely seen it happen with all of these modalities. And what I do see happen, though, that a lot of athletes are kind of in the space of, hey, if I tell you right now, like, hey, well, we can clean up your gut, get your gut healthy again, stop the contents from your gut going into your brain and inflaming it. So the leaky gut thing starts to become a comorbidity, right, to the inflammation. We can also strengthen those capillarities and vessels and uh, veins and all these pieces. We can bring back the blood flow to the tissue, even just with exercise, beyond the photobiomodulation light therapy. But you've got to eat healthy, exercise, get good sleep, 
get your circadian rhythm back on track. That's another huge thing because we detox that tau protein from 10 to 2 every day. So 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. is when we need to be asleep. It's the most important. So when it comes to some of the, this, what I see is I see these very proactive retired athletes or young guys and, and women reaching out and doing all the things. And then I see the individuals reach out and you tell them what to do and they're not going to do all the things. So when we're sitting here talking about, you know, I get a little, in the beginning, I may have been more on that, in that camp of like, oh my gosh, this is so bad. You poor thing. Yes. Bad things are going to happen. But what I've seen over the last like 10 years is that people can heal if they want to do all the things. And it's a lot to do. But guess what? It's your brain. Seems like the nature of human beings. Yeah. You want people, everyone gets to the top of the mountain, but they don't want to hike. I know. So I hate to sound crass about it, but it's like, yeah, if you are sitting here having, you know, suicide ideation, feeling terrible, feeling awful, guess what? I've been there. I've had multiple concussions. I've had all these terrible things happen. But if you're not willing to do the things to get yourself out, that's on you. You know, it's like, it's unfortunate, but it's like, hey, you would go out there and do two a days playing football in college, you know, 10 hours of practice a day. But if you won't do this stuff now, that's on you. That's not on the coach that was out there pushing you in football. Yeah, that's uh, that's the, that's the brutal truth of this entire topic, I think. You know, uh, at the end of the day, as you mentioned, whether it's, I mean, especially addiction, but in general life, it, it comes down to you. You know, obviously there's external occurrences that make things more challenging, but at the end of the day, you do have, I think that's the message I'm getting. You do have it in you to fix it. And I think that is definitely one big lesson that I'm pulling from you is making people aware of that. And how do you do that? Maybe through conversations like this. So I think it's really there's a lot. I'm gonna have to play this back a few times to really hang on to a lot of the things you just said because it's so. Uh, there's a lot of big words there to say the least. <laughs> so it's it's really interesting. But I'm I'm like I said I'm reading that book of Bruce Lipton and it doesn't and it talks about a lot of you know cellular aspects of the brain that is maybe not the same as what you're talking about, but it's so in depth in the way that we're all connected throughout our entire body. How one thing affects the rest, and it's important to understand that. So if you could ever write a book about a uh, you know, this one-on-one for dummies, that would be really helpful. But that's the, you know, Bruce Lipton, he was a professor in the uh, PhD I did, which I did a PhD on the study of consciousness on purpose, right? Because you get into clinical social work or clinical sports psych or clinical psych, and there's not as much about all the quantum field and the quantum physics of things. And I truly believe, because again, when like you hear me, I'm like, no, people can get better. If you have a clinician sitting here and diagnosing you and saying like, oh yeah, you're this, 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 I don't know, you've had these concussions, you might have CTE and they're doing all this stuff. Do you think that that's going to help the client's nervous system and brain be like, oh yeah, I can heal? Probably not. So it's like, we gotta be very careful because yeah, you tell someone like, yeah, you probably do have CTE. Yeah, I don't know, you might kill yourself. What do you think is gonna happen? You know, it's like, it's this whole other end of that of just talking about like, yeah, okay, so these things happened, but our body's very resilient. Neurogenesis is possible at any age. And so we're going to do this, 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 and this is why these things are beneficial, you know? It's the labels. So you put the, instead of putting the labels on it, which is so easy to do, especially from a, you know, a medical aspect, just like maybe just focus on or what are the symptoms, this and that? Okay, now what's the solutions as opposed to, oh, you may have this, you may have that. I feel like that just ingrains you know, negative affirmations further, as cliche as that may sound. Listen, everything you're saying is very interesting. I love the path that you're on and have you made it such a big part of your life from personal experiences? I think that just adds to a level. I think you're on the good side of the 50%. <laughs> Not to you know uh, defame anyone else on the 50% of worrying about 
you know, they're licensed as opposed to helping someone. So I commend you for that. But to kind of fade out here, I know this wasn't a question that I asked you to prepare for, but if uh, for anyone that may be listening right now that is either knows someone that is having suicidal thoughts or someone that's going through it right now, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I am putting you on the spot. Is there anything you would maybe say to them right now that may be going through the ringer? That you can shift and change. It doesn't feel like you can right now. It feels very hopeless, but you can. I am proof of that, and I've seen thousands of people shift. And I think that that is the most important thing that people need to know, no matter what you've already tried in the past. There are other things, because everyone's going to shift to the extent that they do with every whatever nervous system shifter that they're utilizing. So they just may not have had the right one yet. And in really a lot of people who are really struggling are battling addiction. So it's like, yes, you can get sober. You can feel good. You do not have to be a slave anymore to the substance. So, yeah. Paige, thank you so much. Is there anything in, I'll plug it on the end, but is there any way people want to find you or anything to connect with you? If you want to drop that information right now, feel free to uh, put yourself in the spotlight. Yeah. You know, I've got my at sports psych page. Instagram, and then my website is robertsneurotraining.com. So I have a lot of different modalities on there and different things that people can even purchase and have at home and start shifting before they are ready for a different shift. There we go, Paige. Thank you so much. I really love your message. And uh, I think that ending right there was so perfect. I Whatever you're going through, I, I can't relate to so many different things personally. But I just, I do believe regardless that people do have a way out uh, just in the moment. It may not seem like that. So thank you so much. 